Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. For those who are familiar with the show, here is Theophilus. He just decided to be insane, of course, of course, because we just pushed record, so that means he's going to be nuts. Hopefully, he will not be eating into my books, but uh, this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature and life. Um, man, I love thinking about cool stuff. So you guys are invited to come think with me. Um, today's a very special guest. I have with me Dr. Samuel Liebens. And uh, man, we're going to be talking about whether or not you exist in the mind of God and whether or not you're like a, a fictional character in his mind. It's going to be awesome. I'm really, really excited for it. If you guys like this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can become a YouTube member. And YouTube members and patrons get early access to uh, all the episodes, as well as a bunch of other perks and merch and stuff like that. So you can find the links in the description. If you're on YouTube, you can see the join thing. Just go ahead and give that a click. A lot of ways to support the podcast. Uh, so please consider doing so if you want uh, me to keep feeding my crazy dog and keep these lights on. So uh, without further ado, let's bring in Sam and let's talk about God's mind. <laughs> Sam, thanks Hi. so much for, for coming on the podcast, man. This is really exciting. A great pleasure. It's nice to be here. How you doing? Doing, doing well uh, now that I got you here. How, well, so you're, you're in a different place in the world. Um, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about where, where you're at and, and what you're doing out there? Sure, sure. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Haifa in the north of Israel. Um, I was born and raised in England. Um, but it was always uh, an ambition of mine and, and my, my family's, uh, my ancestors, of course, uh, to, to come back to Israel from where we, from where we hailed. It was uh, a, long, a long time in exile. Um, uh, so, so luckily, I managed to get a job in, in the University of Haifa. I'd spent some time in America before that. It was at Rutgers uh, mm -hmm. in the Center of Philosophy of Religion there, and I was at Notre Dame in the Center of Philosophy of Religion there. Uh, but I grew up. I grew up in England. I, I'm from the town of Leicester. For those of your uh, listeners or viewers who, who who follow soccer, as they call it on your side of the Atlantic, <laughs> uh, right. we call it football. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, that that's it. So, so, so in in the north of Israel is where is awesome. where I make my home. Yeah, I was I was gonna. I'm glad you mentioned Leicester because I was gonna ask about your accent. I'm I'm yeah. trying to I'm trying to get like good at picking out because I get all these you know English guests on. And you, you all sound different. Everyone sounds different. Yeah. Yours is like an, an elegant. You got a real nice one. Oh, there. Is, is, is that, uh, I, yeah. I don't know where I, it is. Is that Northern England? Well, like, Leicester is right in the middle of England. Okay. So it's, you know, I th and I think some people in Leicester do have a, a Northern accent, but my, mine, mine is quite, is quite generic. My, my okay. It's crazy. It's a tiny country, England. And yet the, the number of accents in that country yeah. and, in, and in the United Kingdom in general, is very small. It's like, you know, United Kingdom is much smaller than Texas. Let's right. say. It's got you know, dozens, if not hundreds of accents. Crazy. Seriously. Yeah, so crazy. Yeah. Um, well, before we jump in on some of your papers here, I just wanted to get a feel for um, how did you get into philosophy? And then, you know, what well, made you want to be, become a professional philosopher? Sure. Well, um, I, I got into philosophy at high school. Hmm. Um, I, I 
when I was six when I was sixteen in in British high school, you have to specialize in a few in a few topics. It's like taking APs, advanced papers, yeah. in, in America. But that's all you do in high school for the last two years in Britain, and wow. you have to choose a number of topics. And and in fact, that's why like things like law and medicine in America are postgrad degrees. In in Britain, they're undergraduate degrees, and mm. you have to. You have to choose a high school already, like to do pre-med at high school. That's big crazy. decision. Yeah, seriously, big decisions. I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I, I chose things I thought I was good at. I, I chose theatre, English literature and politics. And I needed a fourth and I wanted to do music. But my parents said, you can't do drama and music. You need to do like they wanted more academic, you know. Yeah. So, so one of the teachers from the religious studies department at high school pulled me aside and was like, Sam, you, you've got to take our A-level in philosophy. It's amazing. And I, I, I really didn't enjoy religious studies at, at, at high school. And I was like, no, I don't want to do it. But he, he practically begged me. He said, you're really going to like it. I promise you. So I, I decided to take it just to see what it was like. And, and it, cha- it really changed my life. I, I actually, I recently wrote uh, an introduction to philosophy of religion. It's called hmm. Philosophy of Religion, The Basics. It's, it's part of a series with Routledge. And I, I dedicated it to my two... Um, philosophy A-level teachers, like wow. I said, you know, I, I didn't, you know, and then you said, how do I become a professional philosopher? Well, um, I did, I did my bachelor's degree um, and, I'd, and I just felt like I hadn't exhausted the itch that I was trying to scratch with my, <laughs> with my philosophy degree. Yeah. I'll do a master's and then I, and I, and I, you know, finished the PhD, the master's PhD, and I just wasn't finished uh, you know, scratching that itch. And right. I, you know, it, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a, a moment where I said, okay, I'm going to become a professional philosopher. It just, um, um, I never gave, I just never gave up studying it. And there was rabbinic stuff on the side as well. I went to rabbinical school as well. Um, yeah. um but, um, so I did, um, I became religious as uh, about the same time as I found philosophy actually, but it, oh, it wasn't, what, it wasn't as related in my life as it became um, yeah you know the the religion stuff was quite was more based on emotions whereas the philosophy was more based on reason and it took yeah. a while for me to to kind of marry the two yeah um one second there's something there's a noise in the background I, yeah. can you hear that is that okay just, just a little bit it's, it's totally fine yeah okay so yeah. so i um what was i saying yeah so well, so yeah religious yeah, so I became I became religious about the same time, and I actually before my before I did my bachelor's degree, I did two years in rabbinical school, mm-hmm. and actually at the rabbinical school, and I'm sure it's the same in some Christian circles, they were not keen on me doing philosophy. <laughs> they thought, like, "Well, you'll go to university, you'll study philosophy, you'll you know you'll you'll lose your faith." Hundred um, percent didn't didn't happen to me, thank God. Yeah. And and then after my PhD, I went back to rabbinical school, and I, I actually became an ordained rabbi. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Um, and is that, is that Orthodox? You're, you're an Orthodox yeah, rabbi, right? I'm an Orthodox okay. rabbi, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm a very unorthodox Orthodox rabbi, but, I, but officially, I'm an Orthodox rabbi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been enjoying some of your works on that. Uh, you, you wrote a piece um, like critiquing Ben Shapiro. Uh, I thought that was, yeah. that was a good yeah, one. that's it's, right. It's, it's fun stuff. Um, so, so today we're going to get into uh, Hasidic idealism and... Mm -hmm. I, you know, looking over the, even like the sources and stuff like that, I'm like, usually I, I have a way in and I can, oh, I know this author. And this one was like, nope, I don't know. I, so I need, I need a lot of help. And it was really good. Um, Hasidic, can you help us with like the difference between like Hasidic and Orthodox? Is there a difference between sure. those types of Judaism? Um, um, yes and no. Uh, um, Orthodoxy is like a broad uh description of lots of different strands there are lots of different types of orthodoxy i suppose right. it's like you know you could call yourself protestant but then there's loads of different strands right. of protestantism yeah. even within like a more united church like the catholic church you could call yourself catholic but then even within catholic you know there were different sects yeah. or different augustinian you know, and yeah augustinian yeah and and, and then yeah. you could be in different um um you know if you're uh you're different orders right monastic yep. orders mm -hmm. could be Domini dominican and franciscan or whatever so yeah. um I, I would say that the orthodoxy is is like one very broad communion i'm trying to translate into kind of christian terms <laughs> this is good this is well, helpful right and then yeah. there are lots of different strands within that very broad communion one strand is ultra orthodoxy which takes a very negative attitude towards non-jewish wisdom the secular world they're quite introverted a bit like the amish or, or you know okay uh, in, in, okay that's the ultra orthodox this is good i'm, I'm um, so glad you can help with all the connections man. this is gold <laughs> yeah because yeah. i spent quite a lot of time with a lot of christian theologians and philosophers so i've kind of yeah. learned um, <laughs> um, and then and then uh, and then um um hasidism was a pietistic movement in the 1700s within orthodoxy okay um and now the intellectual descendants of, of Hasidism are one strand of ultra-Orthodoxy uh, mm. today. Now, I'm not a Hasidic Jew, and I'm not an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I'm what's called a modern Orthodox Jew, which, which is a type of Orthodoxy that embraces secular wisdom okay. um, not, and non-Jewish wisdom, as well as, as well as Torah wisdom and revealed wisdom. But... Um, I have never believed that Hasidic wisdom is, is only for members of the Hasidic sects, right? Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom there to, you know, for all of us, Jew and non-Jew to, to yeah. reflect upon. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's fantastic. So, uh, another one would be, uh, I already lost it. You told me how to say it, but I think it's Kabbalistic Judaism. Yeah. Kabbalah, right? So there's yeah. Kabbalistic Judaism, right? So Kab Kabbalah is, is the main strand of Jewish mystical thinking. And there are Kabbalistic Jews, you know, Hasidism was 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 pretty much exclusively Kabbalistic, but okay. but there were non-Hasidic Jews who were Kabbalists as well. Hasidism tended to be an Eastern European phenomenon, uh -huh. whereas the Kabbalah was much um, wider 
uh, you know, geographically, Jews in North Africa, Jews in, in the lands associated with, with Islam, as well as Jews in Europe uh, okay. were, were interested in the Kabbalah. Was the, was the Kabbalah um, and, and Kabbalistic Judaism, um, was that more like mystical and then uh, Hasidic was more like intellectual? Was that a way to categorize them or not necessarily? No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I'd say okay. that um, uh, Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. Um, so all Kabbalists are mystical. There were non-Kabbalistic Jews like Maimonides, the Jewish yeah. rationalists. Yeah. And, and, and there you could make that distinction. Okay. But also Hasidism was anti-elitist. Uh, so you're right that, it, that Hasidism was was emotional, pietistic, but non-elitist. It was supposed to be gotcha. for, for the, 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 every, the everyday Jew, whereas non-Hasidic forms of Judaism, be they Kabbalistic or not Kabbalistic, they'd become quite elitist and quite, in, you know, intellectualist. Yeah. Uh, and if you weren't smart enough, you kind of didn't matter, yeah. God forbid. Whereas yeah. as uh, Hasidism was was um, was about rejecting that elitism. Okay. You know, everybody can have a relationship with God. You don't have to be smart. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, this is good. And there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in 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 uh, Christendom as well with, sure. with those types sure. of things. Man, that's exactly. fascinating. Um. Yeah. So so you got this paper uh, that we're going to be talking about where <clears throat> you're trying to help solve this problem of oh man uh, of Seth. Sephra and Sephrat? The Sephirot. Yeah. Oh, the Sephirot okay. is the plural. Sephirot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you're it's solving this problem. Fun. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This is like way out of my element, but I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Um, there's this, there's this apparent problem where it looks like, um, well, it looks like there's different like aspects of God uh, in yeah. one way, or maybe even like different personalities, almost like different things yeah. in God are personified, like his justice and stuff. Yeah. Um, can you yeah. help us? Like, can you lay out um, Sephirot yeah. more Sephirot. And, and yeah, yeah motivate so, the problem so, for us? No worries. No worries. Sephirot is, is the, is the plural of the word Sephira. So there are 10 of these things. Each one of them is a Sephira and in plural, they're the Sephirot. What are they? Well, it's part of the Kabbalistic tradition and non-Kabbalistic Jews don't believe in this at all. They don't think there is such a thing as the Sephirot. There's just God. The Kabbalistic Jews, be they Hasidic or non-Hasidic, doesn't matter. Kabbalistic Jews have tended to relate to God as this singular being who in his transcendence, so to speak, before he even created the world, he was completely unified and undifferentiated almost to such an extent that language fails um, systematically to, to describe this being, God in his transcendence, because the way that language seems to work, it has this deep grammar, predicates and, and, and subjects. Every sentence kind of has the noun phrase, which is what the sentence is about, and then the predicate, which describes the noun phrase. And the idea is that God in his transcendent is so unified and also so kind of self-sufficient. Yeah. Uh, and there's such, such an undifferentiated perfection that, that as soon as you try to describe God, you start imposing um, distinctions that where, where there really shouldn't be distinctions, even if it's just distinct distinctions of grammar. So the idea is God in his transcendence, completely and utterly singular. But as God becomes manifest in the world that he creates, it's as if uh, the, the, the pure light of God's divinity 
Uh, and I know this um, Gregory Palamas, is that his name in the Eastern tradition, that in, sure. in Christian Eastern Christian Orthodoxy. I think there's a, I think there's a similar thought in, in Eastern mm-hmm. Orthodoxy in, in Christendom. There's this idea that God's light, as it comes into the world, is kind of refracted yeah. um, into, into, into different, like the, the white light of the sun becomes refracted into the many colors of the rainbow, right? Yeah. God, as he so to speak, unfolds into his own creation. He 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 um, refracts into these ten kind of attributes, mm-hmm. and that's what we call the spherot. These ten attributes. Now, um, the problem is in the mystical tradition. You ask me what the problem is. Yeah. Um, the mystical tradition relates to these ten attributes, which it sees sourced in the hinted to in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible never, as, you, as you'll know, because it's the Old Testament of your Bible, yeah, Parker. Right. But it never, never refers to these things by name as, as there being ten of these things. Although there's an odd verse here or there that the Kabbalists appropriate or recruit as hinting to these ten, uh, these ten attributes but as the kabbalistic tradition develops they start to relate to them as powers like 10 mm. powers yeah. they even start to relate to them as interacting with one another so one of them is called um mercy right uh, uh, uh and one of them is called justice and um those two are in tension with one another and you can kind of imagine like god uh from the point from the aspect of justice god forbid might want to punish us for our sins but from the aspect of mercy might want to forgive us yeah. um and as this unfolds into the world these two so to speak entities justice and mercy are in conflict with one another and some yeah. of them are male and some of them are female some of them even have erotic relations and give birth to to new spherot mm. um so along came the the anti-Kabbalistic Jews and they said, where are you getting this from? First of all, it's not in the Bible, right? right. It's just not in the Bible. It's not even in the early rabbinic traditions, or if it is, it's it's deeply hidden, right? The Kabbalistic yeah. masters, they could find hints in, in earlier rabbinic texts, but it's certainly not explicit in the Bible. First of all, where are you getting this from? Second of all, we are monotheists. Right, and we <laughs> yep. believe that God is one, and you, you've you've kind of made him like he's ten, and they'd say all these strange things. Well, that God is ten, but he's also one, right? Mm. And they're like, you know, are these things identical to each other? Because if they're one, they must be identical to each other, or are they distinct entities? Because if they're fighting or making love, right, yeah, then right. they must be they must be distinct entities. But if they're all God, they must be identical entities. If you pray to them, is that idolatry? Because you're not actually praying to God. I know that in some in some parts of Christendom, praying to saints or praying to people other than God is acceptable. And in other parts of Christendom, that's completely forbidden. But yep. the, in, in the Jewish tradition, it's almost exclusive. You can't pray to anything, anything other than God. And yet mm-hmm. in the, the mystics seem to pray to these things. Well, you know, so you, you can start to see the problems. And I think for a Christian... It's not identical for reasons we might get to, Parker, but it's very similar to problems related to the Trinity, yeah. right? Because along comes the early church based on 
based on hints, perhaps in the New Testament, some some people may think it's more than hints, other people may think it's just hints, but based on hints in the New Testament, that you, you'd find much harder to justify in the Old Testament. But again, maybe you could see hints here and there. But, you know, yeah. along comes the early church and says, look, God is three persons. It's one God, three persons. And and the Unitarians, and I don't mean the Unitarian Universal Church in America that's barely, <laughs> that's barely theistic. I mean the hardcore Unitarians, yeah, like the real, right. you know. They, Muslim, they usually call themselves biblical. They, we're biblical yeah. Unitarians. You're like, all right, biblical we're all trying Unitarian. to be biblical. But yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, but yeah. people like Dale, people like Dale Tuggy, right? Yeah, I don't know yeah, if you've sure. come across Dale's work. Yeah, but, of course. But also, also Muslims, and Christian, Muslims and Jews, you know, outside of the Kabbalistic tradition. We're Unitarians. God is one. And, and what are you telling me? That three persons, they're identical to each other, but they're not identical to each other, but they're one, but they're three. It just sounds like a complete headache. And mm-hmm. the, 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 the anti-Kabbalistic Jews said similar things against the Kabbalah because of this, what I'm calling the problem with the Sfirot. And yeah. uh, to, to such an extent that in one famous medieval letter, uh, an anti-Kabbalistic rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Juran, says... You know, you think Christianity has trouble, but they've only got three. You guys yeah. have got ten. So, yep. so you know, I'm 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 certainly not the first to draw this analogy between the problem of the Sfirot and, and related problems with 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 uh, Trinitarian thinking. Yeah, I, I I love that. As I saw it, I was like, okay, boom, yes, we got the same okay, kind of thing going it. on here. This is so good. Um, so if if a lot of my audience will know that, like, if you read a book on divine simplicity. It, it has to have the prism on the cover. It has to the white light coming yes, in and, yes, but, but, yes. but usually they, they will, they will emphasize, um, these are not real distinctions. You know, it's just through the yeah. prism of creation type stuff. Yeah. Um, with the, yeah. the, uh, with Kabbalism, are yeah. they, is it clear whether, um, there's like a, a general teaching, like these are distinct things or, you know, is there even infighting within the truth? And it's just kind Look, of, it's not, over- it's not clear. There's a lot of infighting yeah. and there's a lot of confusion. I, sure. I just have to be completely brutally honest with you. Sure. The early sources seem to mix their metaphors all the time. So okay. sometimes they make it sound like these 10 Sphirota instruments that God uses. And sometimes they're described as attributes of God. Sometimes they're described as like independent entities. Sometimes they're described merely as, refraction refracted light and some some of these mystical authors you know mix those metaphors and use them all and you're like oh no i'm trying to get my head straight it's a philosopher it's a real pain and one thing that differentiates um a jewish orthodoxy i think from any kind of christian denomination is that we, we never had councils right mm. so in, in in christian theology there are going to be these early councils church councils um different Churches, of course, will disagree as to which ones are the authoritative and which ones do you have to listen to and which ones, you, you know, but we never had anything of the sort. So really what unifies our communion, so to speak, is is practical. We, we all see ourselves bound by Jewish law and there's a very intricate Jewish legal system. Um, but on matters of fine grained theology, we never had a council to say, OK, now we're going to decide these guys are yeah. right. Those guys are wrong. And so our traditions just got like lots of different suggestions. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I'm just a lonely guy trying to make sense of them all. Well, I kind of I kind of like that because it's like um, 
we disagree on some stuff, but I yeah. am not going to call you a heretic, you know, like, <laughs> or maybe, maybe you can, you could joke with each other a little bit more yeah, than yeah, like, no, this council said that. And like, well, what if, what if we come to learn something different than what the council said? What if our metaphysics are different? It's like, nope, yeah. it's gotta be Aristotelian. It's gotta, yeah. That's right. So I, that's right. That's, we that's do have, we do have more freedom and, and, yeah. and a certain degree more tolerance. Don't get me wrong. There have been, yeah. Terrible times where Jews have written other Jews off for being heretics and burnt their books. Sure. But in theory, and you do you do see it even in practice, Jews with very different theologies will go to the same synagogue and pray together. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I had a question about the the Sfirot. Um, yeah. Can you say it again for me? I, I want to try and say so, it. Right. So let, we'll talk about them in the plural. So it's the Sfirot. Sfirot. Okay. Boom. Yeah. Sfirot. Um. So like if you read a if you read a commentary on like the book of uh, John the Gospel of John, yeah. um, yeah. D. A. Carson, one of my professors, he he would he would emphasize uh, Debar in the Old Testament and and you know God spoke by His mm -hmm. word and right. it's it's almost as if the word is being personified and that right. was kind of my that was kind of my hook to to get into the Sphira and be like oh I'm yes. I'm seeing some of this but um can you can you tell us some more like I, you don't have yeah, to name all so ten but is is the word one of them or or, or not that's really? very that's a very nice point parker no the, uh, the um well maybe the word is one of them there are three intellectual sefirot right okay. most of them are more like emotional three of them are kind of intellectual uh chokhmah bina and dat wisdom understanding and knowledge oh, cool. um, and there are some people who who um identify chokhmah which is wisdom with torah with 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 uh, with scripture, the Old Testament, yep. and they associate that with the word, right? So, yeah. what's happening in John is there's a reference there to the wisdom in the Book of Proverbs, chapter eight, right? Yep. There was the wisdom that existed before the world was created, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yes, in the Kabbalistic system, many people would identify the first of the Sefirot called Chokhmah with that wisdom that existed before the world was created. And that's likely what John was talking about. Yeah. Now, yeah. in the Christian tradition, that becomes flesh in, in Jesus. Yeah. In, in the Jewish tradition, that becomes, so to speak, flesh in the scripture mm. of, of the five books of Moses. Yeah. Right? The five okay. books of Moses is something like an incarnation of um, that yeah. first Sephirah. And in fact, okay. I mean, I'm not here to teach you Christianity, but in fact, that's one way of understanding what Jesus is saying. He's saying when he's, that he comes to embody the law of Moses, he's mm -hmm. being quite literal, right? That the law of Moses was the first uh, incarnation of that davar, of that word. Yeah. But perhaps it was unduly abstract and the people didn't understand what they were supposed to understand from it. So it becomes incarnate in, in, in actual flesh. Uh, in Jesus. Now, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Messianic Jew either. So yeah. these are not my theologies, but, I'm, right. but it helps you to understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the really nice things about having you on is, is hearing you pronounce the words. So like <laughs> I, I was, I love, you know, wisdom, knowledge, understanding. I read Proverbs every day. I'm trying to, trying to be a sage, trying to be a philosopher yeah. sage. Right. But yeah. I, you know, in, in my head, it's, it's Hokma. So it's so good to hear you <laughs> with Chochma. not my Chicago accent. Can you, say, can, you, can you pronounce it for us again? Chochma. Chochma. It's so good. Good. Um, good okay. Yeah. yeah, this is this is fantastic. So yeah. um, that would be the first of the Sphira. And we, we actually yeah. see in the Kabbalistic tradition, the, the, the main protagonists in the Hebrew Bible are all embodiments of different, they are all incarnations of different Sephirot. 
So Abraham is an incarnation of um, of loving kindness, huh. and Isaac is an inca- is an incarnation of restraint. Jacob, mm. in- interestingly, is an incarnation of truth, even though he seems like an yeah. absolute liar, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but but but, but uh, there's a whole. It's a very very in- intricate system, and in, in fact, there were Christian Kabbalists in the medieval period who kind of you know uh, played around with some of this stuff too. Yeah, yeah. This is this is so good. Um, yeah. Okay. So try not to get lost here. Um, so there's there's some options for uh, thinking about Sfirat. Uh, yeah. One is that the descriptions of one God. Another is that yeah. there are, you know ten names. Uh, yeah. And then another would be like their emanations, which which emanate yeah. from God. And I would I would imagine yeah. that the emanation view might have more to do or might be influenced by like Neoplatonism. Yes. But perhaps absolutely. not. Okay. No, 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 you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Okay. And Neoplatonism was a big influence over Jewish mysticism, just as it was over Christian and, and Muslim okay. mysticism in the Middle Ages. Um, and I actually think the emanations view is probably the most widespread. Okay. That these ten okay. things like emanations of one God. Yeah. Yeah. One of the something that um that I've noticed in even in like the continental versus analytic debate, uh the con- I would say the continentals are more the mystic like type brain folks and yes. um and and even in Christian mysticism as well. Um when you try to get clear on some of the stuff, part of part of the impetus for it is that it's unclear. And and yeah. that's part of the like the myst- like hey look, you're trying to get us to talk about this transcendent thing and yeah. I can't do that. So yeah, good, yeah. of course we'd expect <laughs> And it's like you try to pin down. Well, what, what do you mean emanations? Is it well? Yeah. Look, man, it's emanations. And and I wonder, yeah, does, does yeah. that play a part in, in Jewish mysticism as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I'm doing, and, and a small number of colleagues, it's, it's quite rare. In that, we're trying to use the tools of analytic philosophy mm-hmm. to discuss not Jewish philosophy in general, which we do, but even to attack, so to speak, Jewish mysticism. Say, so, okay, yeah, I know you guys are talking about things which are in essence difficult to talk about or, or whatever and and you, you you also play place a lot of weight not just on thought but on emotion and an experience and that's great and we're not criticizing that but yeah. how much clarity can we bring to the ways you talk and to you know in the mystic tradition right. and, and that's almost like a challenge i set myself right how yeah. how much clarity can we bring to bear on these mystical traditions yeah that's so good. So, um, so there's these three options, and then you you come up with this uh, a fourth option, the Hasidic yeah. solution. But so I want to yeah. just go over really quick why why are the first three, you know, why are they, why are they no good? Well, um, so ba- basically, if they are um, descriptions, if they're just ten descriptions of God, um, then then you have to lose a lot of what seems to be essential to the mystical tradition, because we talk about these things um, um, conflicting with one another, making love with one another, having relationships with one another. Well, you know, I'm sure, Parker, there are more than 10 true descriptions of you, right? Uh, We could come up with a whole list of true descriptions of you, but it would be really bizarre to talk about the descriptions fighting one another or making love with one another or producing the, you know, in, in any, in anything but a deeply metaphorical sense. Right, so it just right. seems like description seems like the wrong, you know, the wrong way to go. Um, um, also God, God is described um, quite explicitly in the Bible. I'm thinking of um, 
of Exodus 32 and 33, where, where Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks God for, a, you know, something like, let me see your glory. And God, so yeah. to speak, describes himself to Moses at that stage. Now, there's a deep dogma in Judaism that Moses is the greatest prophet who ever lived. And um, the idea that the Kabbalists could come up with 10 descriptions that beat the descriptions oh. that, that uh, Moses came up with. No, oh. that's, we can't, you know, we can't accept that, right? So that's sure. kind of a, kind of an intra-religious kind of se- sentiment as to why it would be problematic to say descriptions. What exactly the difference between descriptions and names is, okay. But like, likewise um, with, with emanations, Emanations comes closest to the view that I'm actually going to defend, right? I think the Hasidic view that I defend is, you know, is is almost like an unpacking of what we might mean by emanations. But but until you unpack it, there's a difficulty in terms of uh, the way that the Hasidim and the mystics talk about them being 10, but also one. Think Mm. of like, think of like the... um, the the three persons being three but also one um if they're emanations well then there are ten of them and they're not one at all they're kind of emanations of the same thing but that but the underlying you know red and yellow are both um refractions i suppose is that if that's the right word of of white light but red Mm -hmm. is not identical to yellow you know they are different wavelengths um they're both there, perhaps, in the white, but they're not identical. Yeah. And if you want to say that these 10 things are... I wanted to provide a model that could really make sense of saying they're one and they're 10 yeah. um, without contradicting, without... And I think just, just saying they're emanations doesn't, doesn't do that. Yeah. It's a little bit like you said, Parker. It's like in the mystical tradition, sometimes they'll give you a word, a word like emanations, and you think you know what that word means. But like... You, you haven't you haven't really been given a theory, yeah. so just to say that they're emanations isn't enough. Um, I think this is a little bit similar to what I believe in in most Christian churches is thought of as a heresy, but the heresy of modalism in the Trinity, mm-hmm. which is that there's one God and there's three different ways that He appears. Yeah, and the problem with modalism is that it doesn't give those three ways, first of all, enough. Um, ontological clout they're merely ways that god appears yeah and another problem i think the modalism for trinitarians but correct me if i'm wrong uh, is that it doesn't do justice to the sense in which um god is all three of them mm-hmm. um, um these are just masks that he wears it doesn't really get, it doesn't really do justice to the the the, the unity between god and any any given one of them yeah. just masks yeah. so so for similar reasons, for similar reasons why the Christian might reject modalism, I'm not happy with just, just saying they're emanations. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to me to do justice to the Kabbalistic tradition that I'm trying to make sense of, a tradition yeah. in which these 10 things are one, they interact with one another, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and that's really helpful. And, and I thought this was also fascinating for my Trinitarian listeners who uh, emphasize the unity and diversity of uh, Trinitarian doctrine and, and want to say like, hey, look, uh, you know, we have this this problem in philosophy of, of uh, the one and the many. And is everything mm-hmm. one? Or is everything many? Well, kind of both. Well, yeah, that makes sense if you if, if the world has been made by a God who is both one and three. And, and mm. I thought there's a nice little parody here of, well, here's here's a, a God who is one and ten. 
And so, yeah. you know, it's a nice parody argument and, and it's something for Trinitarians to be thinking through. And so it's like, this is great guys. Here's another one. Like think through this too. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wanted to jump in now to the, uh, so some people are going to be really interested in what we just talked about. And some are like, I'm just here for the idealism. Like that's fine. Okay. Here, here we go. So, um, it's a Hasidic solution to the problem of spherot. Of the spherot. Yeah. 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 And, and you say, Hey, look, maybe God's dreaming. Can you help us out? Yeah. Like, this is so good, man. Yeah, well, and I'll, and I'll be really controversial with you here, Parker. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll up the ante. I, I'm not sure whether the Sphirot exists, right? It's sure. a theory of, of mystical Judaism. It's interesting. I'm interested in it. What could they possibly mean? I am quite committed to the idealism thing. Ooh. And what I, was try, what I was trying to do in this paper that you're, you're, you're citing, maybe you can post a link on it to it, yeah. or, uh, you know. But what, what I was trying to do in that paper was say, look, you could use the idealism that the Hasidic movement championed. You could actually use it to solve the problem with the Sfirot. Now, I don't, I don't personally have a horse in this race because I'm not, not tremendously committed to the Sfirot existing or to taking it literally. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But um, I like the idealism thing. So yeah. I'll try and explain to you in, in, in a nutshell what, what the idealism is. I'm sorry that my, my emails keep... Um, oh, no worries. Yeah, I can't uh, hear um so so the, the the way the idealism piece works is like this and i actually wrote a paper with um with my my partner in crime uh, tyron goldschmidt with whom yeah. I've, I've i've written quite a few pieces and we wrote we wrote a piece called um divine contractions theism gives birth to idealism it's open access people can find it in, on religious studies the the cambridge university press um, um journal so jewish mysticism um, at least as it unfolds in the Hasidic tradition, as Tyron Goldschmidt and I understand it, is like idealism on, on steroids. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I want to try and give your readers a sense of, of, of what would motivate this. Okay. Why should, why should a theist adopt a really radical idealism? Yeah. And the basic picture goes something like this. Okay. Um, we believe in God. Okay, this much we have in common, you, you and me, Parker, and I hope many Man. of our many yeah. of your listeners, right? We yeah. believe in God, and, and we think that God is perfect, and and um, there may be a puzzle as to how can something perfect create a world like ours, yeah. and there are various ways into the puzzle. Uh, one way into the puzzle is that you, you could put it this way: God is so powerful that nothing he could create could in some very important sense of the word be beyond him uh, because he has such immediate power over all, you know over anything because of his omnipotence yeah. tyron and i um relate that power that immediately efficacious power that God has. So, so it, right now, you know, you, you have a, a, a fabulous moustache there, Parker. But right now, <laughs> if, God, you know, if God wanted that to disappear, it would disappear immediately. He wouldn't have yeah. to. He wouldn't have to trouble himself with a razor. It would just disappear immediately. Yeah. Right? That kind of direct power from intention to result is the sort of power that characterizes the relationship between a mind and an idea. 
of that <laughs> mind, mm -hmm. right? You don't have that power over many things, right? You can't just like intend and then, right? Yeah. Uh, but you do have that power over over your ideas, right? You can, you know, conjure a red flower in your head and then you can say, ah, I'm going to make it green. And then straight, you don't have to go out and buy any paint. It's just green immediately. It's green yeah. immediately. One of the arguments that Goldschmidt and I put forward is that God, because he's all powerful, he couldn't create something so far removed from his power that that his powers would be anything um, different to the power that minds tend to have over their ideas. Yeah. So so to speak from God's position, anything that God could possibly create would just be a mind in his in, in his an idea in his mind. Sorry. Yeah. Or another way into the idealism is to think that, well, God is, is absolutely and utterly perfect, but there is no such thing as a perfect world. Now, part of perfection is that you would never create something suboptimal. Mm -hmm. The perfect God wouldn't create something suboptimal, but there is no optimal world. So God's in a bind. And it looks like he can't create. So I've, I've made two binds for God. The first bind is he can't create anything outside his mind. Mm -hmm. The second bind is he can't create anything that's suboptimal, but there's nothing that's perfect apart from him. Yeah. So he can't, so he can't create. And there are different solutions to the problem. Uh, and there's actually a third problem. I won't get into a third way of putting the problem, but yeah. different solutions to this problem. But the, the, the Hasidic understanding of the Kabbalistic solution to this problem is that God actually didn't create a world. He didn't yeah. create a world that exists outside of his mind. Instead, he imagined creating a world, and that's the most a perfect God could do. And that act of imagining brings into reality uh, something like a fiction. And, you know, you and I, we live within this fiction. Yeah. Um, now, it's a crazy view. It's a wacky view. Yeah. Um, you could come up with a million objections. I've tried to answer many of them in various places of, of my writings. But to really understand the view... And, and um, you know, I think this will give you the essence of it. You, you need to imagine reality as functioning all the time on two levels. Okay, mm -hmm. there's the there is the world as it is from God's perspective, and there's the world as it is from our perspective. Yeah, and both of these are are equally real in some sense of the word real but one is obviously more fundamental the world as it appears to god is more fundamental than the world as it appears uh, yeah. to us but they're both real in some sense and what you have to do is whenever you describe some phenomenon you have to tell me whether you're describing it relative uh to the world as it appears to us or relative to the world as it appears to god and it's much like the distinction you have to make when talking about fictions in general. Yeah. Uh, so I could ask you, you know, is Hamlet a Danish prince? Well, you have to clarify. Do you mean in the story? And then the answer is yes. Do you mean outside of the story? I, I don't know, in the world of the actual writer called Shakespeare? No, Hamlet wasn't a Danish prince. Yeah. Um, does Hamlet have free will? Uh, well, in the story, yes, he does. Uh, but relative to Shakespeare, no, he doesn't. Uh, yeah. Hamlet does whatever Shakespeare ordains for him to do. And finally, is Hamlet a figment in Shakespeare's imagination? Well, in the story, no, he's not. He's a person of real, he's a real person of flesh and blood. But 
you know, from Shakespeare's perspective, yes, he's just a figment of Shakespeare's imagination. And we could say exactly the same things, mutatis mutandis, about us and, 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 and our perspective and God and God's perspective. Yeah. That's the idealism piece. It's, it's like I have so much to ask because uh, I wrote my master's thesis on the God-world relation um, as, uh, right. as, as an authorial analogy. And so I'm like, oh, it's so good. There's so much. So, um, how, okay, what – so – First, first and foremost, I want to. Uh, was C.S. Lewis your main? Was C.S. Lewis your main go-to? Um, he was one of them, but um, I think the free will piece um, he didn't think through as much. Mm. So he he thought of it more as a a tool for looking at particular uh, things, like well, why isn't God? How come the the Russians can't go out into space and see God? Well, because he's not like that kind of thing. But then right. um, Kevin Van Hooser develops it for like everything, and I think that his model. Yeah it commits you to certain things. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, the, the notion of free will at play and stuff, but I, I want to anticipate, um, uh, an objection. So some people would say, well, look, um, let's go with perfect being theism and, and think through, you know, an idealist God who can only create in his mind versus one who can create outside of his mind. Yeah. It seems like the one outside of his mind is more powerful. And what you guys are doing is actually, um, you and Tyron seem like, a, a, a similar move that's done when it, uh, when you think about the paradox of the stone and it's like, yes. look, is God limited? No, no, no. He's, he's, he's limited by his, uh, his omnipotence. His sure. yeah. Right. right. Yeah. 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 And so, so I it's think a, it's the same move, right? It's, it's yeah, that's exactly right. It's what we're saying is it's a consequence of his perfection that he can't create a world that's distinct from him or outside of him. Yeah. And, and actually if you describe a God who can, you're describing a less perfect God. Right. It's, you know, it's, it sounds paradoxical, but, but we, yeah. we think, you know, on, on, on careful scrutiny that's actually how things unfold yeah that's and it's similar to like like george mavrodes um i think that's how you say it he he is yeah. this, i always he, call it mavrodes but i think you're right it's mavrodes yeah. yeah 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 i have no idea but I, <laughs> he he um he says look it looks like um under like careful scrutiny it it comes out to being like hey can god you know uh, make a dog that's too big for uh, in the, a, a God who's perfectly uh, capable of walking dogs. Can he do that? Well, no, he can't do that because you're asking him to be limited. So like what you yeah. guys are saying is you're, when you spell it out, you're asking God to be less than perfect. You're asking him to be exactly. less than omnipotent. Exactly. So it's a really careful argument that if you want to critique it, you got to do the hard work of finding out exactly what's going on here. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Now, I, th I think better critiques, and you've anticipated these in your comments, is, yeah, but on this view, you know, we wouldn't have free will, yeah. and, and yeah. surely we have that. We yeah. know we have yeah. that. And, yeah. uh, and, and the problem of evil, you might think, yeah. becomes of course. exacerbated. Of course. Sure. Can I, before we go there, can I ask about, I want to ask about, um, about um, the perfect world type stuff. So um, probably planning us, maybe someone else, but there's like this objection to God creating a perfect world. And the objection is something like there is no perfect world because you could always add yeah. one more thing. And so you guys one might use that. Bunny. Exactly. Right. They always, planning always says hula girls, dancing hula girls. I'm like, that <laughs> dancing might hula be girls. a little, yeah, a little inappropriate. It's, it, it's a bit, it's a, it's a bit, yeah, that's a bit passe, right? You could, <laughs> you could get it, away yeah. talking that right. way, but it's not. That's right. Not appropriate. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Dancing bunnies or whatever you said. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys, you guys might use that to say, look, because that's the case, there is no perfect world, or not might, this is what you guys say, there's no perfect world, yeah. so therefore a perfect being couldn't create, because otherwise he's creating less than. What if, um, following your own, like, uh, narrative theme, or like the, the theodramatic theme from Van Hooser, or, you know, whatever we go with, what if, 
what if he is not hmm, what if he's not going for like the perfect world in balance of uh you know evil and good but uh the perfect narrative the perfect story yeah. right yeah. what if that's yes. like the impetus for creating a world outside of himself what, what do you make of that good. one good so i th- i like that and i think that's actually part part of the explanation is you know one of the one of the classic theological questions is why does god create a world at all yeah and it's actually on this view it, it, it's a function of his kind of narrative brilliance his artistic brilliance yeah, it's right. an aesthetic thing right yeah. why does a storyteller tell a story yeah. um now so i like that uh, but i'd say this um um I tried to explain that there are multiple problems, right? There's the problem of creating an optimal world. There's also problems to do with God's power. There's also um, problems to do with God's uh, rationality. Uh, yeah. uh, I, won't, I won't get into it here, but we, we develop a similar problem from God's rationality. So I'd say, well, look, yeah, you might be right that God would have a reason to create a less than perfect world for kind of narratival purposes but it might be that one of our other arguments will kick in and say okay. yeah but still that world can't be outside of him it, yeah. it can it could could at most be a story with so to speak within his mind yeah yeah okay um that's really good so uh i want to talk about evil real quick and then we can go into like the free will stuff too but does this... and we must eventually explain how how this idealism could potentially solve the problem with the sphere art right? yeah yes, yes, yes. yeah that's right that's right um it's a good point thank you i'm so excited about it i'm, I'm having a hard time even like focusing. <laughs> so do, w- would this commit you to like a privationist view of evil because all evil then would exist in god who is a perfect being well i, I actually think um when it gets to the problem of evil th- this view has to has to offer two responses to the problem of evil it has to respond from the point of view of god the author Uh right why does god so to speak is telling a story tell a story in which all these terrible horrible things happen Mm -hmm. but actually from god's perspective that's not so pressing because from god's perspective they're figments of his imagination right Uh, from god's perspective the pain and suffering isn't real there's still a question to ask why can't you tell a nicer story god like it's pretty horrible some of these things you're imagining so it's still a problem but that that's one problem and it needs its own response but uh, we uh traditional theists i won't say classical theists but we theists in the in the abrahamic traditions we don't just believe that God is an author of the story. He's also a character in it. Right. And you don't, you don't need the Christian incarnation to, to believe that because even, you know, even for Christians before the coming of, 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 yeah. of Jesus, you know, um, God split the sea. God right. freed, God Pil- freed the Jews. Pillar of smoke. He's speaking out of bushes. Like all that yeah. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so God appears in the story. Now that happens in novels too. Novelists appear in their stories. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now that, but the thing is, um, what's true of the novelist and what's true as the novelist as a character in the story might be different. Yeah. Right. So for instance, you know, Kurt Vonnegut appears in the breakfast of champions Mm -hmm. and in the breakfast of champions, it's true to say that he visited Kilgore Trout. That's true in the story, mm-hmm. but it's not true outside of the story because there's no such person as Kilgore Trout. Kilgore yeah. Trout is just a figment of Vonnegut's imagination. So too, we can talk about what's true of God in the story that he tells and what's true of God fundamentally or you know, yeah. from God's perspective. Now, in the story that God tells, God created the world, made us, 
and lets us suffer. So God, as a character in the story, owes us a theodicy. Why does the why does the character called God do that? Right. Yeah. Um, now, I think I actually think any of the any of the classical theodicies um, could be adopted here. You could yeah. give a free will defense. You could give a soul making defense. You could give a, any of them. So it's kind of interesting. It's it's on on the level of God, the author, he's going to tell you one thing. And on the level of God, the character in the story, he'll he'll tell you another. Yeah. If you're going to be super radical, you could you could say, well, actually, God, as he appears in the story, is not completely perfect. Uh, his complete and utter perfection is hidden from us in the story. And then the problem of evil disappears, mm. right? Uh, I mean, that's very radical. And, yeah. you know, I don't yeah. want to be branded a heretic <laughs> uh, by, my, by my co-religionists, but, right. um, but you could go that way. God yeah. is perfect outs- beyond the story. Yeah. He, says to, he says to Moses in that chapter in, in Exodus, um, no man can see my goodness and live. Mm-hmm. Cold to thee, my entire goodness. It's almost like in order, in, you know, in order to give room for a world to exist, when God reveals himself to us as a character in the story, he doesn't reveal himself as a completely and utterly perfect character. Yeah. His perfection is, is, is at the transcendent level. Yeah. So that's evil. Well, done. Oh, yeah, that's right. Everyone's <laughs> done. No more. I, I, um, I just love this analogy so much because uh, in, in the Christian tradition, I, I studied theology and I'm studying philosophy. And yeah. they're fighting in my own head, but they're also my friends and they come on the podcast and they fight too. And it's, <laughs> it's this, this analogy, at least from the authorial model, and it works the same with Hasidic idealism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is God uh, timeless or is he temporal? Well, which one are you talking about? Because the author exactly. stands outside of the story and yet he's a character yeah. in the story. And I always, I'm an evangelical, so I have to use C.S. Lewis for mm-hmm. this stuff. But, yeah. you know, you think of uh, The Great Divorce. He, Lewis is yeah. a character in the story and yet he's, he's talking yeah. with his characters but meanwhile, Lewis is holding the whole story together in his mind. In his head. And yeah, insofar, that's right. yeah, and insofar as the author yeah. um, writes his own character, his himself as a character, in a way yeah. that uh, genuinely represents him, then yeah, you yeah. can trust that like C.S. Lewis is like this in in, in right. space reality, or you know, in, in, in and right. of himself. Right, like, it's not yeah. deceptive. Yeah. It's not. A de- it's not deceptive, but. You know, as, as sophisticated readers of fiction, we might recognize that, oh, in order to function as a character in this story, he had to become temporal or something. Right. Whereas perhaps, perhaps in the transcendent space, you know, he's, he's atemporal. Yeah. I, I don't, I try doggedly not to have a view on that about whether yeah. God outside of the story is temporal or atemporal. Well, but and, and he could, it could be either, right? Yeah, it, it, it could, could be either. either. You yeah. don't know. But, but you think about C.S. Yeah. Lewis writing the story and he, the climax of the story is about to happen. And then pause. What, what's going on? Where's the climax? It's like, yeah. oh, Lewis had to go get and going for tea. Yeah, yeah. Coffee, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, it doesn't actually pause because there's two different levels of time going exactly. on. Whether the the you know God level actually has time or not, it's still different. Yeah. It's still a different time. Exactly. That's exactly. so good. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. about. No, it's a very powerful. It's a very powerful model. Yeah, yeah, and it can bring a lot of people together, and a lot of people will say you're heretic. So that's maybe yes. you're maybe you're onto something when when that stuff happens. Right. <laughs> um, I'm wondering. Okay, here's here's a a difference though. So, um, yes, you need a theodicy. And I think if you're, if God's telling a story in his mind, or if he's telling a story up, you know, out there in the world, um, he would have a greater, uh, if he's good, you know, he would have a morally sufficient reason for writing the evil into the story. Cool. That's all cool. I think one thing that, that I'm, um, I want to hear from 
you on is uh, if the story is outside of himself in an objective world, you know, going on, uh, yeah, in creation, then like evil is is out here. It's it's out mm. here in the in the story. But if it's all mm. in God's mind, then it seems like this perfect being has evil like in his head, unless we go with like a privationist. Least, at least, yeah, at least he can imagine evil. Yeah. Oh, right? Okay. So then, so then you have a question, and. <laughs> I, I, I hate to use this terminology on your respectable podcast, but it, it wasn't my terminology. It's okay. actually entered the learned canon. It's called, I, I, I almost can't bear, my, bear to say it myself, but it's called the horny God objection. Yeah. Uh, did did you, Mullins make that this? up? Did Mullins make that up or was it someone else? No, no. If I'm not, well, I think Mullins made it up, but I think he was actually riffing on the PhD dissertation of Tasia Scruton okay. at Leeds. Okay. I'm not sure, but I think I think Anastasia Scruton is the is the is the real source of this okay. Okay. Horny, God, horny God objection. Yeah. The, the idea is some people think that that related to what you're saying with with um, with um, Mavrodes and the and and the, uh, the the rock that God can't pick up. There are certain paradoxes of God's perfection. Some people think that it's a function of God's perfection. There are certain things he couldn't imagine. Right. Right. So he could, you know, he couldn't imagine evil things. He couldn't um, and he, he, he couldn't have like horny thoughts is, yeah. is the reason is the reason it's given that. You, you yeah. know, it's not like, you know, if God sees an attractive person, I won't, you know, I won't say male or female, but God sees an attractive person enter a room. He doesn't go, oh, four. That's right, just not, right. it doesn't. And, you, and it couldn't enter God's mind to think such right. a thought. Right. So I, I, I actually think it. I'm committed to the view because otherwise I, I don't think I could explain at all evil in the world. I'm committed to, to the view that God can imagine evil things. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I need to take a stance on whether evil is just a privation or okay. I, I just, I just don't think it's part of perfection not to be able to imagine bad things. On yeah. the contrary, I think you, we're talking about artistic perfection as well and aesthetic perfection. I think, you know, there are some people in aesthetics who want to condemn artists and authors for their ability to imagine very dark things. Right. I don't think that's fair. I actually think it's part of their aesthetic perfection that they can imagine those things, mm. perhaps even that they can see the beauty in them. Yeah. I suppose, well, okay, I've been thinking about this one a lot because of the thriller analogy, but it seems like there might mm. be some kind of like aesthetic or ethical requirement. If you wrote a... a story that's only about like graphic child abuse and there's no redemptive qualities you'd be like hey man this is really bad you shouldn't write yeah. this you know yeah. um but yeah. so that's think, not the case here right exactly i think i i, I would agree to that Parker. god yeah. couldn't write a bad story and whatever yeah. bad story means right? right and i agree with you a story that was just unrelentingly evil when and, and there didn't seem to be any point yeah uh that's that that, that's something we can't believe God, even yeah. in his transcendence, would be able to do. But yeah. I do think God could imagine a world with with holocausts and terrible, terrible things, so long as, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, the, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. If yeah. if, if the story as a, as a whole, you know, ends in redemption, um, then, then I, I don't see why God shouldn't be able to imagine totally. e even, even the most dire things. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I love this, I love this, uh, topic 
I shouldn't say it's hard to say I love this topic, but it it touches so much stuff in philosophy of religion, like like Zag Zebski's omnisubjectivity. Like, does God have our you know perspective? Well, what if I'm doing something evil? Okay, so that touches that, and then Graham Oppie calls it he calls it like the problem of body body thoughts, which is a little bit of, you know, outdated term for a lot of us millennials and Gen Zers, but, but it's, it's a problem of body thoughts for theistic conceptual realism. Um, and it's like, okay, all this stuff connected, this is on the table for all of us. So it's really fun thinking through this. Here's like a really weird question, right? But I, something I've thought about, um, um, there are certain experiences we can't really imagine having because we don't have the right sorts of bodies, right? So I, I, as a, as, as a, a cis male, uh, I, I, I can't really imagine giving birth, right? I can mm. imagine being in pain. I can imagine being, but like, certainly not with much authority, right? I can't imagine. Yeah. So, but, he, but here's the thing, right? Tolstoy writes Anna Karenina, the novel, and, it, and, the fe- and it's a female protagonist. Yeah. Is there anything that Anna Karenina knows what it feels like that Tolstoy doesn't know what it feels like? Yeah, right. Well, like, how could there be? Because right. like everything that Anna Karenina even, it's all imagined by Tolstoy. Yeah. So I, I think it gives you potentially it gives you a, a way to understand omnisubjectivity, yeah. even though God is so transcendent and other and doesn't have a body and right. having bodies themselves was just an idea that God had. I know. I know. So, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and you might if you're like really analytic into it, you might go with like conditional or something. God knows what it would be like. So it's like, does God know what it's like to eat a Chicago style hot dog? It's like, well, what do you mean? Like, yeah. what do you does he know what it's like for me? Yeah. What does he know what it yeah. would be like if he were to incarnate? Yeah, he does. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, but, but he doesn't know what it's like to eat one without having a body because there's right. no such thing as that, right? Right, yeah. right, right. But I think it's a helpful clarification because then it's not just like God's spirit. He can't do that. It's like, well, we can say no. more than that. We can absolutely say it more is. than that. But yeah, exactly. I have to. Yeah, so but when you understand that God created the concept of taste. And hot and dogs. God created the concept. Yeah, and, and hot dogs, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should. Because he use, knows what they taste like. Yeah. Co- kosher ones, you know, it would have kosher to be. Kosher ones, kosher yeah, ones. Exactly. Um, I, I, I have to say, because if, if Dr. Van Hooser is listening, uh, his whole his whole point in the his authorial analogy is that God would have to be like a Dostoevsky instead of a Tolstoy, because he would mm. say, like, depending on, you know, crit- uh, um, literary criticism or whatever like Tolstoy yeah. is kind of right there wearing a mask behind his his uh, characters whereas Dostoevsky's almost like come to life on their own and they don't always yeah. represent the ideas of the character of the author himself yeah. so that's just yeah. a, a different point about um, but I, I think there's something here with imagining okay so this brings us on to free will um, yeah. I would think that this would commit us to a form of compatibilism but maybe not Maybe not. And I've heard like maybe Molinism and maybe like a libertarian fruit. I know like Hugh McCann uh, in Creation and Sovereignty of God is kind of like a um, leeway compatibilist about stuff like this. So have you, what do you think? Is it yeah. broad enough or is it committed just to compatibilism? I wrote, I wrote a paper years back. It's got many imperfections in and I think the best parts of it exist in my book now called The Principles of Judaism. But in that paper, it's called God and His Imaginary Friends. A yeah, I love this one. Right? I really like this one. Yeah, thank you, Parker. So I actually I, I cite Hugh McCann there in a few in a few places oh, in I that paper. Okay, and uh, no, it's only in the footnotes, but I think it's only in the footnotes. But um, I I relate to the, the issue of free will over there, and 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 the model I put forward there is is like libertarianism. Uh, is how is God imagines us into existence with our libertarian free will. Yeah. Um, and so you get this again, 
you need to analyze um, our statements relative to one or other of the levels of, of this ontology I'm giving you that I'm calling mm. Hasidic idealism. Um, from God's perspective, it's true that everything we do is preordained, right? So that's compa- that, that's that's like at best a compatibilist free will we have, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you're you're misreading the story of Hamlet if you, if you keep saying, oh, why did Hamlet do that? Oh, because Shakespeare wanted him to. No, yeah, no that's right. not that's not part of the story. Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare dreams Hamlet up as freely choosing to do things. And it might well be that libertarianism is part of what, what we really mean by freedom in a thick sense of freedom. Yeah. So and that I take very much from Hume again. Hume again yeah. says, says that pretty much explicitly. Right. The author, he uses the authorial analogy there, and he says an author imagines a character freely choosing and it's yeah. the act of the author's imagination. now it's really hard for people to get their head around you could almost call it like it's meta compatibilism because it's trying to make libertarianism compatible right. With, right. with uh with 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 a type of theological fatalism yeah so i i read hugh mccann's book it's uh for the audience um creation and the sovereignty of god and i read it for my master's thesis because i saw that yeah. he was using that and it, it was so yeah. I just dropped it because I was like, look, I can't do this with the libertarianism. Maybe, maybe someone else can, and it looks like you have, but I was thinking like, well, it's just easier to use like reasons, responsiveness or something like God. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Yeah. I, I have, to, I, I hate to break it to myself because my younger self would hate this, Yeah, but I'm less and less, I'm less and less committed to libertarianism. Okay. Yeah. I used and, to think it was super important and I, I well, it works there are other well. options. Yeah, and the other the other options work super well with the dream analogy or with the authorial um, uh, narrative analogy because, um, at one level, why did why did uh, why did Gollum why did uh, Smeagol become Gollum? Well, because it was yeah. part of, it was integral to the plot and to, and, to the uh, plot. It couldn't yeah, have and, happened the other way. And Tolkien, right? yeah, Tolkien wrote that and he wrote it from his office. And if yeah. it actually it if it didn't have story, it wouldn't have been, it would as, have been as good a of a story. Yeah, no, right, yeah. but. But then you look intranarratively and you're like, why did he do it? Well, because he was jealous and because and he had his own reasons that he was run to, and he didn't feel Tolkien like if Tolkien um, ex machina him and made him like totally different, like dropped in out of nowhere. He's a bad author. Yeah. And we, the story yeah, falls apart. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So but so what I tried to do in that paper was to say, you know, even libertarianism yeah. can kind of be salvaged. But but I. I'm not as committed to the necessity yeah. of doing that anymore. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, Brian Ballard came on my show and we were talking about this cause he, he's working on like narrative realism and, um, mm. he, he was saying maybe, maybe it's like a, a choose your own adventure story where, yes. um, right. Where it's like kind of like Molinism and there's a bunch of options. And so, um, God wouldn't ne- ever let it, uh, the libertarianism run amok and make it a bad story. He couldn't do that, but he's given, you know, all these different options. Yeah. And so yeah. you can choose how the story goes, perhaps. So, in some places, I've called that um, I've called that uh, weak Hasidic idealism. Ah, nice. Is the idea that somehow God has created the world with figments of His imagination, but somehow, because God is so much more powerful than any author we can imagine, um, his merely fictional creatures are actually agents yeah. and therefore they get to make choices or whatever. Uh, but, but I'm into the extreme Hasidic idealism, yes. which is what I think the Hasidic tradition, um, which is that actually, no, like 
you know, we are agents, of course, we're agents in the story. Yes, right? yes. But, but, you know, from God's perspective, it doesn't make sense to say that, you know, we could have made it go differently. Right. From, um, you know, um, yeah, there's lots more problems here. And I think yeah, a lot yeah. of your your listeners will be like, why didn't Parker ask this problem or this yeah, one? Because there's, yeah. there's yeah. only so much you can discuss in a certain right. but but. But I would, you know, if people are interested, like you said, all these authors you've cited um, deal with the authorial analogy. It looks like yeah. you have in your own work. And, and, yeah. and in, in my Principles of Judaism, it, 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 the book is in three parts. And in the first part of the Principles of Judaism, I, I, I really try to grapple with many of the problems your, your audience might have raised without, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. without us getting to. So, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a, just a, a couple. You got, do you have a little bit more time I can... Yeah, we have to solve the problem. The sphere that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> real quick before uh, before we do that, I know. Okay, there's there's two things. Um, one is just does this commit us to like pluralist? Are, are we pluralists about being like? Are we are we Minongians here? Yeah. Great, great question, Parker. I don't I don't think it makes us Minongians. Okay. But I'm actually working on a paper with the brilliant Filippo Casato. He's a philosopher at Lehigh. Okay. Um, and he's tried to push me to recognize, and I think he's right, that Hasidic idealism cannot solve many of its own problems without a view called ontological pluralism, which yeah. is what you're pointing to. Yeah. Ontological pluralism doesn't have to be confused with Minongianism, because okay. that's one particular type of ontological pluralism, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so so um, um, Minong thought that not everything that um, has being exists. So he thought there were kind of different species of existence. I think that what what the Hasidic idealist might have to say is there are degrees of being. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And that God, God has a higher degree of being than, the, than anything else, right? God, the yeah. author has a higher degree of being than anything else. There are various reasons why I don't want to say that it's Minongian, but they're technical. Yeah. Uh, um, I, 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 I agree with you. I think okay. it will be hard to make sense of this view, but you being quicker than me, I didn't see that until recently. You know, I've published a lot on this topic and I didn't really get into um, issues of ontological pluralism. Yeah. Well, this is this is so cool. And, and I think for like the hardcore Thomas out there who, you know, hold to like the Analogia Entis or something, it's it's similar to that. It doesn't have to be like some crazy Minongianism. On, oh, no. And whatever. Even if it is, then just defend it. Who cares? But <laughs> yeah, Joshua, that's right. right. Just stuff to stand behind it. But Joshua Sidjuade has been been doing some of this with uh, existential quantifiers and using different ones. And he's, you know, pulling in. Yeah. So. I, I'm trying to get, I need to get all you guys together and we need to like work most, on it. Most Thomists yes, accept. And I think most scholastic medieval theologians from across the three Abrahamic traditions accept that there's a sense in which God's existence is different to ours. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's, you know, part of the problem that people would say to me when I first put this stuff forward, they want to say something like, what are you saying? That, like me and my freedom aren't real. Yeah. I'm like, no, you are real. You're as real as anything else in your environment. The only thing you're not as real as is God. And if you've got a problem with that, then, then that's, that. you know, right. we, we shouldn't, it's impious to think that we deserve to be on the same ontological level as God, right? Right, right. right. totally. You're as real as anything else. Yeah. Um, all right, last one before we get back to Spirit um, yeah. yeah. um, uh Panentheism. Is this a form of panentheism? So we, we, the world is in God, but God is more than the world. Yeah. You know, the world's in the it mind of God. Be. 
Okay. It might be. It just depends how you defi define that term. Just, uh, especially so, tricky to demarcate, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is that, you know, I, I, I don't think of um, ideas as being parts in a meriological sense. I don't think of ideas as being parts of the minds that think them. Yeah. Some philosophers of mind do think that. Right. Right. So, yeah. so some philosophers of mind would say that every idea I have is a part of my mind. Yeah. I, I, I'm not attracted to that view. And yeah. the ontology I'm providing suggests that the world is is to God what ideas are to minds. Yes. And therefore, I'm not saying that the world is part of God. And I take it that orthodox panentheism is the assertion that the world is part of God. Well, then, no, I'm not a panentheist. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, yeah. but if you're taking it with a pinch of salt, you're saying, no, it's a metaphor. It's part of God in some sense. I, I get why you might think you might want to call this panentheist. It's panentheistic in spirit. Yes, yes, that's that's a good way to put it. And it especially if you go in for like Brian Lefthouse view on um like abstract objects in God where he's like a theistic yeah. conceptual nominalist, then yeah, these yes. are God's thoughts, but they're all they're all like a current and they're he he does it in a way where they're not like their own entities inside God's mind and so you can still be like hold yeah. the simplicity and it's that's so yeah. fascinating. Again, it's it's all connected. So for those who are thinking this is yes. just like stoner thoughts, it's like, well sure, maybe, no, but no, it's no. also philosophy of religion, like deep stuff. Yeah. What I'm trying, well, in fact, what I really want to do, I love what you said. Like, so it might not be my monongian, and if it is, so defend it. I yeah. love that attitude, Parker, because I think yeah. that the, the job of theistic philosophers, we we're all theists, perhaps for slightly different reasons, our own life experience, our own, you know, whichever our favorite arguments might be for theism. Right. We're all, you know, we we've been we've come to theism. I think the responsible thing for theistic philosophers to do is say, okay. What are the consequences of this? Mm. And don't imagine that they won't be radical because it's <laughs> a radical, it's a radical thought, right? Uh, that there yeah. is a supreme being and that everything else that exists exists in virtue of that being's activity or intentions or, you know, it, we, you, you, any good theist will end up sounding like a stoner because it's that's right. A, that's right. Crazy well, doesn't that just like, doesn't that just breathe the fire back into your faith too, though? It's like oh, God, yeah. some, for whatever reason, God gets boring and it's like, well, what? <laughs> no, God is not boring. God is the most exciting thing you could ever think about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, let's go back and see if we can solve this problem of safer. How does, I'll, I'll do um, it for you in a second. Yeah. 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 I'll try and yeah. do it for you really quickly. Right. So we've already got, we've already got all the ingredients here and the basic idea is something like this. Um, we said what's true of, of the author outside of the story and what's true of the author in the story can actually be different, even though they are numerically the same author. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the words Kurt Vonnegut refer to one person. There's no two Kurt Vonnegut's, there's one Kurt Vonnegut. But what's true of him in The Breakfast of Champions isn't identical to what's true of him outside of The Breakfast of Champions, even though there's only one of them. Yeah. So I want you to be able to imagine a strange story in which the, the author appears as more than one character or, or, or one person, one real person appears as more than one character in a story. It's like David uh, Hume's example, dialogues, right? Yeah, well, that's a good that's a good example. But I, yeah, you know, which one's Hume? Well, multiple multiple uh, yeah. protagonists are Hume. But here's an example I, I I give people. I call it the story. It's a story called Loving Lois. Okay, mm. it's it's you, what I want you to do is you imagine that Lois Lane writes a story 
that's about Clark Kent and Superman. Yeah. But she doesn't know that they are the same person. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now it's about Clark Kent and it's about Superman. She doesn't know that they're the same person. And in the story, they fight over her. They, you know, Superman throws Clark Kent out of a window. Clark Kent, you know, goes and gets some kryptonite and tries to, you know, poison Superman because they're both madly in love with Lois Lane. It's her nighttime, nighttime uh, story writing, you know, fantasy writing. Um, It seems to me that the right analysis of such a story is that in the story, Clark Kent and Superman are two people. Yeah. You, you would be misunderstanding the story if you thought they were one person because one person can't hold them, you know, can't throw the other one out of the window, right? right. It, it, in the story, they are two people. And yet, um, because unbeknownst to Lois, in the real world, uh, Clark Kent and Superman are the same person. Mm-hmm. And, b- and because unbeknownst to, to Lois, one of her characters is clark kent and one of her characters is superman but they're actually the same person yeah i want to say that you get these really weird consequences the consequence would be clark kent is identical to superman outside of the story Mm -hmm. and non-identical inside the story how many people are there how many people are there there well there are two (laughs) superman and clark kent in the story and there's one Superman, who is Clark yeah. Kent, outside of the story. And I wanted yeah. to imagine that even an author could do that too. An author could put themselves in a story as more than one person. Yeah. And the suggestion <laughs> is that if you're committed for one reason or another to the Kabbalistic tradition, and you really believe there are these 10 Sephirot and they really do interact in the ways that the Kabbalah says that they do, you could say, well, perhaps, you know, we're all characters in God's story, but these 10 are special. Because these 10 are God appearing as 10 characters. And then it will be that in the story, they are non-identical. But outside of the story, they're all one. And it's no more of a paradox than than the Loving Lois scenario. Um, And I I, I like it. I think, you know, if you do have reason to believe in the Sphirot, you can actually salvage almost everything the mystics say about the sphere art now are there 10 and they're one. You just have to be careful which level of reality they're speaking yeah. about. And you can, you, you can get everything out you wanted to get out. And I wanted in the paper to suggest that maybe a Trinitarian could do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, now my, f- my friend and colleague, and he was my, my office mate uh, for the year at Notre Dame, Carl Mosier, who's a really yeah. decent Protestant yeah, theologian, great okay. guy, ev- evangelical as well, I think, mm-hmm. and, and a really fabulous human being. Um, he was like, no, this can't work <laughs> for the Trinitarian because he wants to say that it's of the essence of Trinitarianism that God is essentially triune. Yeah. So, so that would mean that somehow God, the author, has to be triune as well. Yeah. But I wanted to say, well, look, you could even go like this. You could even say like... Um, in the story, God is essentially triune (laughs) or something like that. I would say that beyond the story, he's undifferentiated. But look, it's not my... Trying to save Trinitarianism is not my... That's not my my issue. I just wanted to offer it to my Christian friends. I do think it works for the Sphirot. I think it might work for for Eastern Orthodoxy and their talk of these these, uh, um, divine energies. Yeah. 
whether whether or not it works for the Trinity will will be up to the Trinitarians to decide. Yeah, and and it might just take some tweaking of saying like, yeah, it's um, you know, God is a uh, a function. God is a functional person made up of three intrinsicist persons. You know, Chad McIntosh does stuff like this, but but I, mm-hmm. I just want to let the I want to make a point for the audience that we've gone all over the place and we talked about yeah. main organism and now we're into uh, you know Frega puzzles and hooded man yes. cases. Yes. And exactly. just just for those who like poo-poo philosophy of religion, like philosophy of religion is philosophy on hard mode because we also yes. have traditions that we're trying to hold to and not and to be respectful be, of. Yeah, yeah, to be a respectful yeah. others, to not be smote by God, maybe too. Like yes. It's, it's yes. philosophy yeah. on hard mode. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. This is where this is this is where philosophy in my mind is is most alive. Yes, yes. Um, okay, I got I got one more. Uh, this is sure. for this is for like the public facing philosophy. I always try to like, okay. I actually hate that phrase because what in my, in my mind a lot of public facing philosophy is just I have this really technical stuff. How do I, you know, force it, foist it onto the the uh, audience? I really think it should be like you you take the questions that the popular audience has, the abstract thinkers who aren't philosophers, and you you pull that in and you incorporate your work. So with that in mind, yeah. I wanted to ask about simulation hypothesis. And how yeah. um, this might relate and how it might be different than, you Good. know, is, is it just the same thing? Is that a metaphor for this? I, 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 think I think they're deeply, deeply similar. I have a paper. It's currently under review. Let's hope it gets published one day called uh, we, we Live in a Story. Yeah. And I tried to argue that um, it, in a nutshell, what, what uh, Nick Bostrom uh, argues for in his famous simulation paper is that there's a good chance that we live in a simulation. Right. That's what he tries to argue, right? Yeah. In, 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 in interviews, he sometimes says it's 20%. Yeah, I have this argument where I try to prove that, you know, if there's a chance that we live in a simulation, then there's a much, much higher chance that we live in a story. Yes. And, uh, and my, my idea is that stories are kind of a wider category than simulations. Yeah. But simulations are kind of stories like a, a limited type of a story and that stories are a wider, you know, and, and therefore it's overwhelmingly likely, I want to say that, you know, if it's 20% likely we're in a simulation, simulation, I want to argue it's overwhelmingly likely that we live in a story, which just so happens to be a consequence of theism anyway. Yes. Uh, so yes. so, so much yeah. we shouldn't be surprised. I, I love that so much. And, and I think even um, some theists will use the uh, simulation hypothesis as a metaphor for God. And I'm like, hey, that's that's something. But the authorial analogy is much better because it actually has more right. implications. It's got more explanatory power. We got a necessary right. being instead of just some simulator. And I, I also think right. that the simulation hypothesis focuses so much on the furniture of the story. Um, so at the popular level, they'll talk about physics and and rendering and yeah. computer games. It's like that's so like base level. Like the the uh, the narrative arc of the story is yeah. much more. You know, that's who cares about the furniture yeah. on stage? Let's yeah. let's, let's look I, at the characters I, and the I, plot. I, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. This yeah. is awesome. And 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 actually, God God isn't limited by by any of the things that might limit computational power of of of, of physical computers as yeah. well, right? Yeah, so yeah. the base reality has certain limitations potentially, but God God has none. Right. 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 Yeah. There's um. There's there's we we can't talk about everything in the world, but maybe we got to get you back on. But I for the audience, like some people will be uh, reminded of 
Descartes' dream argument and say, well, that's a skeptical thesis, so maybe this isn't. Yeah. This isn't a skeptical thesis. And no, 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 no. I think that's an important point to make, Parker. Yeah. yeah. Another one would be like, hey, look, uh, yeah, sure, Tolkien's not on the hook for what Smeagol does, or Gollum does in the books, but yeah. that's because they actually don't have a uh, subjective perspective, whereas we do, and so God's still on the hook for evil here. And it's exactly. Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Especially as God, especially God, the character in the story, he is on the hook, right? Yeah. And that's why theodicy is an important project. Yeah. And yeah. also, and also, you're on the hook because mm. in the story in which you live, you're the one who's made the decisions you've made, and therefore right. you're on the hook. For, you right. know. So, so, um, yeah, a lot, a lot more to talk about. Yes. But, um, yeah. But I, 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 I love your enthusiasm, Park, and I hope that we've been able to spread some of that to your, uh, yes, your listeners. Yes, I think so. Yeah, Sam, thank, thanks so much for coming uh, on to talk about your work. Thanks for the, the papers. They're, they're amazing. I'm going to leave a link to your, um, to your page with all your papers, and then I'll specifically sure. put some of those in there. And uh, looking you. forward to, to having you back on soon. Me too, Parker. This has yeah. been a lot of fun. Thank yeah. you very much. All right, okay. folks, that's going to have to do it um, for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.